listen, we are risen, no more friction, take a seat, we are driven with ambition, no more prisons, hit delete, abolition is the mission, these conditions, the receipt, no surrender, no retreat, always fight until we free, till we free, I just need to breathe, why not let us be, I just want some peace, should be loving me, I just need to breathe, why not let us be, we just want some peace, followed up with equity. Black is beautiful, don't you forget. Not disputable, come with respect. My melanin, beautiful, what you expect. Black is beautiful, don't you forget, don't forget. So today we are joined with Tamara Lewis. How are you doing, Tamara? Great. Thanks for having me. And what is it that you do? What field are you in, Tamara? I'm a pediatrician. So a, a doctor who takes care of certain pediatric population um, of newborns or neonates. So I'm a neonatologist and my clinical work is in the newborn ICU or many people know it as the NICU. And my research work is in newborn pharmacology. Okay, and what interested you about those fields? That's a great question. So when I was a high school student, I'm from Columbus, Ohio, and I went to a um, like academic specialty school where starting sophomore year, we did one day a week of interning instead of going to high school. And I was at Ohio State University Medical Center. And I knew I wanted to be some kind of doctor, but I wasn't sure. And I landed in labor and delivery. And I was, you know, a candy striper. I answered phones. I made like postpartum packets for the moms. But I found that I was always drawn to like that door that said NICU. <laughs> I was always interested, like, where did those sick babies go? And so, um, you know, I was quite a little go-getter even as a teenager. And so I managed to shadow rounds in the NICU a few times, like the doctors let me just come in and shadow them. And honestly, from that day in high school, I knew that I was going to be a neonatologist. Um, the pharmacology piece didn't come until later. As I was training in medical school and residency, I was learning about, you know, what are the areas of pediatric medicine that really are understudied? And pharmacology is one of those areas that there's not a lot of research to help um, guide drug dosing in children and drug dosing in newborns, especially. And so that is what got me interested in pharmacology research. But I'm one of those really nerdy kids that knew from very early on that I was going to be a, a pediatrician. Yeah, I can definitely relate to being in a high school program that really, really inspired me to do what I'm doing now. And it's I feel like it just goes to show that we should have more government funded programs for children and especially children of color to really get into these fields. I also was wondering if you could touch on why you feel that it's important that we have Black women in the specific field that you're in. Sure. So, um, you know, I, one of my 
great passions is increasing the diversity of the biomedical workforce. You know, all the way from nurses, doctors, administrators, all people in medicine. Um, it's, you know, there, it does not, the diversity does not reflect the American population. So historically, um, the, the bar to get into nursing school or medical school has been set in a way that disadvantages minoritized populations. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, you have to perform, you know, profoundly well on standardized tests. You have to sort of have connections so that you get um, internship opportunities and people write you letters of recommendation. And we know that because of the way the American system is structured and structural racism, that minoritized children and teenagers and college students really just don't have the same educational opportunities the same um, financial bandwidth um, to really be competitive with many of their non-minority peers. And so there really is a movement in medicine to reevaluate, you know, how do we define what kind of person is going to make a good doctor? You know, is it really just about objective things like test scores or, or can we be more holistic? and how we decide who is going to get into nursing school and medical school and residency and so forth. And so it's important that the provider population more closely matches the patient population for many reasons. One is that there's actual research that racial um, concordance, meaning if the race of the patient matches the race of the provider, that there are better outcomes. There's actual research data that proves that. But I think even um, potentially more important than that is the fact that if you train with a group of people that are all very similar to you, you are going to learn and reinforce what that group of people has experienced and what they know. And if that is a group of all white, non-minority people, it's gonna be very hard to learn about other lived experiences and to learn how to optimally take care of your minority patients. And there's actual research that shows doctors who train in more diverse training programs feel more comfortable taking care of diverse patients later on. And so it's not just a direct doctor-patient effect. It's also the more diverse your training programs are, your medical school, your residency, the better education the white doctors are getting as well. So there's a lot of reasons, but those are a few. Yeah, I think a lot of people think that increasing the number of Black students that they have is enough. Um, in medical school, I think that a lot of people think that increasing the number of Black students in a given class for a given year is enough, or hiring more Black doctors might be enough. But like you said, it's not even just our representation as doctors or pediatricians or researchers, it's also our representation as patients as these white doctors are getting trained. Absolutely. And, you know, 
the, the system and the inequities have been in place for all of history and for so long that we are not gonna reach a place where the provider demographics match the patients for a long time. So as we increase the numbers of different types of doctors and other medical providers, at the same time, we have to really um, change medical education and change the way we're teaching current medical trainees so that they explicitly learn about things like structural racism, racial bias, um, you know, health inequities, so that these things are really highlighted in their medical training, so that no matter what race or background the doctor is, when they go out to treat minoritized patients, they understand the big picture of the things that are affecting this patient, not just, you know, their one-on-one -on -one clinical encounter, and really learn how to provide optimal care to decrease health disparities. Do you feel that there's a lot of resistance to teaching doctors about structural racism? That is a very interesting question. <laughs> so I think the openness to really learning deeply and understanding about structural racism does have what I would call a generational variation, meaning young people, people currently in nursing school and medical school actually, for the most part, are very open and very hungry to learn about the social things that affect their patients' lives and to and are willing to think about how they can incorporate that into their medical care. The older generations who never learned that as medical students and um, many of whom are from privileged backgrounds really um, struggle sometimes to talk about the existence of privilege and racism and bias and how it plays out in the medical setting. You know, part of it, I think, is because those conversations can make people feel quite vulnerable. I think part of it is also because it makes you do self-reflection about the care that you provide. And, you know, everyone wants to think the care they provide has been, you know, optimal and best. And if you learn about all this, you know, racism and health inequity, it kind of makes you start to think about, well, are there things I could have done different or better for my patients? And it's really interesting, um, one of the JAMA podcasts called JAMA Current, they put out a podcast a few weeks ago, literally, it was two older white men who had a conversation about does structural racism even exist? You know, is, is racism <laughs> something that even affects patients? Right. And there was a huge backlash on social media that JAMA would, you know, which is like Journal of the American Medical Association, like the preeminent, one of the preeminent medical journals would even publish a podcast like this. And, you know, there were letters written, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be fallout from that, but it really was just I think a sobering reminder to those of us who are in to anti-racism and medicine work and into health equity work 
that there is a non, you know, insignificant portion of older doctors that really struggle with these concepts. And, um, you know, unfortunately, those folks are sometimes the gatekeepers, you know, they're the deans of medical schools, they're the head editors of the medical journals, they're leading the NIH study sections that decide which grants get funded. And so you can imagine, you know, if the gatekeepers in medicine are not educated and aware, it really can change, you know, the, the chances of success for different types of people. And also it can really shape what's published and what research gets done. Right. And I think that you really brought this home. I saw a tweet that you posted after the death of Dr. Susan Moore. And just so that people know about this, Dr. Susan Moore was a middle-aged Black woman who went to Indiana University Hospital for treatment for COVID. She was told that she was lying about her shortness of breath. She was not given medication for her pain, and she was actually sent home even though she said she was in a lot of pain and that she couldn't breathe and ended up back in the hospital 12 hours later and felt as if, and she talked about this in a Facebook video that she uploaded before her death, she spoke and said that she felt as if the doctors and medical staff were not listening to her symptoms and that they felt that she was just there to get high off of whatever drug they had, as opposed to genuinely being in serious pain. And she felt that she had to prove that she was in pain. And even as a physician was neglected, because you would expect a physician would be able to say, hey, I'm feeling these symptoms, it could be indicative of this and this. And so you did speak about in this tweet, the fact that multiple medical professionals had downplayed the role that racism played in the death of Susan Moore. And what I really liked is that you talked about how racism manifests in medicine in ways that people don't necessarily expect. And I think that as we assess racism in our society in general, we need to start to understand that it's not just, well, have you said the N-word or have you been blatantly racist? Um, there's something about the structure of medicine and how it's just been structured over time by colonialism and white supremacy that has allowed us to get to this point, whereas you described Black patients can basically receive worse care because of cumulative deprioritization. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit. Sure. So um, it's really interesting when you start to talk about racism in medicine. You know, I think people quickly develop a very defensive posture, you know, I am not, you know, a racist person. I do not exhibit interpersonal racism when I'm taking care of my Black patients. And, you know, so I was really struggling to describe the subtle unconscious ways that bias and racism can happen that you know, in the big picture, you may not even register or you may not even be aware of, but as a, as a minoritized patient works through the system of medicine, how those little differences in care can accumulate 
and over time really affect the outcome. And that was this term that I coined cumulative deprioritization. Now, one level of deprioritization, you know, is that in general, minority populations are concentrated into underserved neighborhoods. They utilize safety net hospitals, which are generally under-resourced. And there's data that minority populations can get lower levels of care, or we'll call it deprioritized in their medical care, just by what kind of institutions they have ready access to. You know, so that's an obvious place where minority populations are, are systemically deprioritized. But my tweet was getting more at the individual patient experience and really trying to open the eyes to the public, but then also really trying to gently open the eyes of providers that you make as a doctor, as a nurse, you make hundreds of decisions every day, literally hundreds of decisions, whether you're in your clinic or whether you're in the ICU where I work. And those decisions happen rapidly and they may seem small, but over time, if multiple tiny decisions are made that subtly um, advantage non-minority patients and subtly disadvantage minority patients, those tiny decisions can accumulate and over time result in something like death, like what happened to Dr. Moore. And an example of that is, you know, um, somebody made the decision that she didn't have enough pain that, that required pain medication, or somebody made the decision that she didn't have enough shortness of breath to warrant admission to the ICU. And they might have seen a different patient with a different skin color and with the exact same picture made a different decision. And so, you know, really thinking about in your role as a nurse, in your role as a doctor, what are the tiny decisions that you make that are not black and white? You know, a lot of decisions in medicine are gray. So what are the tiny decisions that you're making that may you know, deprioritize the urgency of certain populations and prioritize the urgency of other populations, may deprioritize, you know, like for example, one of the examples that I gave is like, you know, you have three patients that are almost ready to go home, but not quite, and you have to really make a bed for more sick patients. Like, who do you choose to tell, you know, today's the day that I need you to go home, you know? you know, all those decisions, hundreds of those decisions are made every day. And so I was hoping that this concept of cumulative deprioritization would help people understand that, you know, it's not that any one encounter is overtly racist. It's that all these little biased decisions that, you know, happen over time really can have effect on, some, on somebody's health. So that tweet um, really, resonated with a lot of people. I think it's like, you know, the one that I've ever made that went the most viral. And I'm <laughs> actually working on um, turning it into a manuscript, like a commentary to publish in a medical journal right now as we speak. But, you know, I just had to get that out because sometimes I feel a lot of frustration with my peers and how they try to think of every other reason under the sun why there could be inequitable outcomes when really there's a very obvious reason that is very um, prominent in all of American society 
which is racism and medicine is not immune. And so I was hoping that I would lay that out in a way to kind of open people's hearts and minds. And I wonder what are some of the factors that they're willing to acknowledge contribute to inequity? Because they're not willing to acknowledge that racism is a part of it, but I bet that they're willing to acknowledge that financial background is a part of it, but that's also tied to racism. There's a lot of social determinants of health. That's what we call them in medicine, social determinants of health. So those include, you know, what neighborhood you live in, um, your socioeconomic status, your educational opportunity, your job opportunities. Medicine is willing to like acknowledge each one of those individually. (laughs) But the thing is, all of that, all of those social determinants of health are all because of structural racism. I mean, there are other, there are other like things that play into it, but a huge part of the systematic inequities we see in these social determinants of health is because of historical and current racism. And so that's the leap that we still need to take in medicine is we believe these social determinants of health. We have mountains of research that say these social determinants of health affect healthcare outcomes and mortality and lifespan and all these things. The leap that we're still struggling with is that racism is the root. And that if we want to really improve the social determinants of health, you have to start at the root. And so that's kind of where we are right now. So going back to speaking on health disparities, how might we see these health disparities manifest specifically in your field? So when we're starting to talk about women giving birth and children and newborns. Sure. So health disparities are um, preventable variation in health by a certain category. So a lot of times there's gender health disparities between, you know, differences in, you know, let's say the, the rate of cardiac death between men and women, that's a gender health disparity. But what I focus a lot in, and um, talk a lot about is racial health disparities, where you have differences in a health outcome that vary by race. And those differences really are not based in any biology. You know, it's not based in the fact that a white body is different than a black body. It's based in the fact that there are structures that cause those health inequities. And so I think what you were alluding to is the fact that in the United States, you know, black women die um, around the time of childbirth two and a half to three times as often as white women die. And that's really a sobering statistic when you think about, you know, what that means for each of those individual families that lose a a woman, but also like, what does that do to communities? What does that do to generations of people? Um, And there's increasing research and increasing acknowledgement that a a significant contributor to that disparity in maternal death is is structural bias in the healthcare system. 
and is is also likely structural inequities in access to care. And so I've heard some obstetric doctors talk about the fact that, you know, of all the maternal deaths, over half of them are, are classified as preventable. Meaning, you know, if the, if the woman had gotten different care at a different place, in, in different care in some way by a different team, you know, if folks had listened to her sooner, if folks had prioritized, you know, her emergency, whatever that may be, um, that, that a lot of these deaths are preventable. And so now there is a whole movement of researchers and doctors who are really trying to um, explain the root cause of this maternal death disparity. And, and part of that root cause is structural racism and to really tackle that head on. What does it look like to really tackle that head on? And so um, if people are really interested, you know, they can just Google reproductive justice. It's kind of like this reproductive justice movement where people are saying essentially enough is enough and we have to identify and break down the structures that are causing this disparity. Another outcome that varies by race is rates of preterm birth. So in the United States, Black women are much more likely to have a preterm infant than white women. And for a long time, there was, you know, trying to find, is there a genetic reason? Is there a biologic reason? But really, the consensus, for the most part, is that the differences in rates of preterm birth are likely an effect of um, cumulative stress of being a Black woman in the United States. So there's this concept of weathering that your body actually ages differently and your, your, your hormone system and your stress system evolves differently if you are a minority in this country. And that it's that cumulative weathering that can really affect birth outcomes and the rates of preterm birth. And so, you know, that gets us back to a structural issue. You know, why is it that a Black woman has a, um, you know, um, at its core, a different life experience than a white woman in this country? And, you know, there's always exceptions to the rule, but I'm saying on average in this country. And so, you know, an acknowledgement that if we want to affect this disparity in preterm birth, that we have to research and talk about these structural causes. And really, a lot of the um, solutions are going to be at the public health level. You know, they're not really going to be at the individual doctor patient level. Really, these are going to have to be structural changes, public health changes that um, decrease that disparity in lived experience and um, decrease the chronic stress and weathering on Black women. And so just to clarify, you aren't just talking about the chronic stress felt by Black women during the period in which they're pregnant. We are talking about the chronic stress that Black women feel every day throughout their life and how changes in 
neurotransmitters and hormones as a result of that stress could have long-term health impacts that could in the long run end up impacting their ability to survive childbirth and their child's ability to survive childbirth. And I feel like what you are saying also really highlights the fact that we need to have more long-term studies on the health of Black individuals and how that's impacted by systematic racism. So there need to be more studies. From what I know of right now, I don't think that there are any longitudinal studies on Black women's health and stress and what that leads to as far as their ability to give birth later in life. I'm talking about, when I say longitudinal, you know, a study that follows Black women for 10 to 20 years and actually monitors their hormone levels, has some sort of behavioral survey on their lived experiences, um, just getting behavioral data on socioeconomic background, access to healthcare, and actually see, because we can talk about these disparities, we can talk about the impacts of racism, but until we actually start investing in Black health, it's not, we're not going to be able to make the next step to actually be able to prove to the higher ups that structural racism is real. And I feel like even then, if we do have a longitudinal study, then there still will be room for white people to deny that any of this is real. Because of course, longitudinal studies have a ton of confounding variables, right? Um, But I just want to remind everybody that we don't just see these health disparities, but we see that these individuals are also severely underrepresented in research. And that's part of why people are able to deny a lot of what we experience and emotionally and physiologically go through is because there's not much investment in the field of research in Black and Indigenous populations and how their lived experiences could impact their health. And that really needs to become a priority as part of health equity. I agree. And I do feel hopeful that that is changing. You know, what you're saying is absolutely correct historically, but I do think there is a recognition by the major funding bodies that this needs intentional money and intentional focus. And and I think there is finally a critical mass of researchers in this space that are unwilling to stop fighting, you know, unwilling to to stop getting grants, doing the research, training the next generation of disparity researchers. And, you know, I I do think that it's going to take time, but the gatekeepers are also changing. You know, the people that make the decisions about what is a priority for funding and what is not a priority for funding, you know, what is real science versus what is not real science, all of that is changing. And so, you know, I have hope that there will be increased focus on um, studying the health of black and brown people in the United States. I do have a lot of hope about that. Yeah. And I, I definitely have hope as well. I mean, I, I wouldn't be doing the podcast if I didn't have hope, but I always think about how many thousands, if not millions of people had to die before people started to care because systematic racism and its impact on our health. I mean, this has taken hundreds of years 
Um, and it's just interesting that we still see the ramifications of slavery to this day. And I was reading up a bit on what mothers on plantations had to go through and how seriously their symptoms were taken and that they would have to work on the plantation while pregnant. And that the only time that a doctor would be called in is if something happened to the child or the mother that would therefore make them less valuable to potentially be sold or to be a worker. In what ways do you feel like these health disparities and cumulative deprioritization of Black symptoms relates back to slavery? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. Um, You know, I think the thing that's hard for a lot of Americans to admit is that for so long in this country, um, some of us were not considered 100% human. You know, some of us were really considered as equal to an animal, you know, as far as, you know, how you could buy and sell them, how you could treat them, you know, their value, their intellect. And you know, the, the, that difference in how you see different bodies with different skin colors and how you value them, like truly value them at their core for their real value is something that has been passed down for generations through the U.S. And, you know, every generation, I think, is, is, is less impacted by the ramifications of that stark classification of human value that was part of slavery, but we are nowhere near the point where the effects of that are eradicated in our, in our society and how people are treated. We are nowhere near that. And so, you know, it's interesting in medicine, we talk about some of the very concrete ways um, slavery can still affect the way people think about different um, humans today. So one of them is that in order for slavery to be, um, I guess, palatable to many white people, there, there had to be this rationalization that Black people didn't feel pain and that Black people had different bones and different muscle that could tolerate different levels of work and abuse than white people. That was literally a belief. And um, remnants of that belief are still present today. So there was a study um, looking at perceptions of medical students and residents about um, biologic differences between white patients and black patients. And medical students and residents today, some of them reported they believed black people had thicker skin they believed black people had different pain thresholds. And you know, that's not based in any research. That's not based in any biology. That is purely your sense of the way different bodies work that has been passed down through the legacy of, you know, devaluing and dehumanizing the black body. And so there are, I think, you know, more nebulous ways that it shows up in medicine and then more concrete ways that it shows up. Right. And I really appreciate you for just really stating it how it is, because I think a lot of people can look back and say, oh, there was racism, there was segregation, 
Um, there was discrimination, but it's no, like we were literally looked at like cattle, like animals. Um, and in some ways even worse, um, and less valuable. So I think that that's something that a lot of people really have to remember here and something so severe as dehumanization does not disappear in a few centuries, especially if these institutions are not heavily invested in anti-racism work. And so even if we start to see that younger generations um, are more actively invested in their personal lives and anti-racism are more quote unquote woke um, or that black individuals now may experience racism in more passive or different ways than our ancestors did, there still needs to be that acknowledgement that these institutions are still really, really far behind. If the people with the majority of the power that uphold the policies and regulations in these institutions are not committed to anti-racism and actionable ways to work towards anti-racism, then we're not going to see much of a difference. And I think that that was something that I noticed about racism in general, especially living in Seattle, living in a West Coast city that is deemed very liberal and really just seeing people's denial of their contribution to racism and denial in how their city functions, even in terms of gentrification and how that contributes to racism, because people believe that they're liberal, that they're the newer generation, that they voted for Hillary or they voted for Biden. And so they're more invested just by proximity to being a part of the Democratic Party or because they've never screamed the N-word at somebody. Um, but it's so much deeper than that. And I think that this is why it is hard to make steps forward because then people start to get really offended and nobody wants to be told that they're racist. Um, and people seem to have a bigger issue with being told that they are racist or that they are in a racist institution or an institution that upholds racism than the actual root problem, which is the fact that it still exists and is persistent, whether you are consciously a part of it um, and so we really have to reevaluate our own actions, but also the actions of our institution. Yeah, you know, to take away that taboo of just acknowledging the power of racism in a, in a group conversation recently, I just said, like, I am racist because it's true. Like anybody that grew up in this country and was inundated from the time of birth with constant subconscious messages about who is smart, who's not smart, who's beautiful, who's not beautiful, who has worth, who doesn't have worth, who has a good family, who doesn't have a good family. All of us that grew up in the United States are racist. And so, you know, sometimes I hope that by me just saying that, that I have racism within me, that I work, you know, to educate myself and to rid myself of these racist thoughts that have been instilled within me as I've grown up in the United States. There's no shame in admitting that. And I think if more people were able to just, you know, take that barrier off the table, you know, it's not a question. Everyone that grew up in the US is racist. Now, what are the conscious thoughts and the conscious actions that you are gonna do to eliminate the influence of racism in your life, in the lives of, of you know, your patients, in the lives of your community. And I think that is what's 
so powerful about racism in the way it's framed in the United States is it's framed as a good guy, bad guy dichotomy. You know, either you're racist and you're bad or you're not racist and you're good. And so nobody wants to admit that they have racist thoughts or ideas or that, you know, they're a racist. And, you know, that is what is such a barrier to progress. And that, you know, false dichotomy is what has kept us from making significant progress for so long. Because just like you said, a lot of white people, a lot of white liberals are unable and unwilling to just admit that they are not an exception to the universal American rule. And so, you know, I wish there was a way, you know, Dr. Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, really gives people new language. And I hope more people read that book. But I wish there was a way for us to get over that very early stumbling block of being able to have honest conversations and make structural change. But that really is an incredible trick of the way racism has been, um, you know, conceptualized by American society, that it makes it near impossible for many white people to admit that they are part of the problem. The same way I, Dr. Tamara Lewis, is and part of the problem. And we all have improvements to make and we all have learning and unlearning that we need to do. Right. And I think that to deny that even we as black people can be inherently racist and it's not even just racism. I mean, even transphobia, every single person in this country is transphobic because we are part of a racist, sexist, transphobic society. And we have been brainwashed to be a part of that society and to see that as normal. And I think people who deny that, I, I do really worry because if we can't acknowledge our flaws or shortcomings, we are not really fully understanding how severe and widespread and pervasive racism is. And that's that's why I really like Dr. Kende's book because, you know, each chapter really breaks down a different form of racism that, you know, is not interpersonal bias. There's a different types. And the, the chapter that really resonated with me is assimilationists, like people who believe that um, sort of um, high SES white culture is kind of normative and that if you know minority american population x or y would just assimilate you know would just you know you know behave a little differently that they could receive better health care or they could get a better job or they could you know you know obtain whatever life goal and that is a form of racism like that thought that other types of people need to contort themselves to assimilate, to be like some other standard besides what they naturally are, is racism. And that's, you know, that's really one of the chapters that was eye-opening to me because I was brought up with that belief 
you know, I was brought up with the belief that, you know, it's something about, you know, like black culture that's keeping them, you know, all in these under resourced urban areas. And it's something about the fact that they can't, you know, kind of grow and break free from that. And, and that is completely untrue. And it is absolutely structural and systemic reasons why certain populations are chronically um, intentionally disadvantaged and kept where they are. And so, you know, you know, just him calling that out and describing that that subtle thought process is a form of racism was really helpful for me, you know, and now I'm really aware of that. And now, you know, I am consciously thinking, you know, the reason why different types of families receive different types of medical care is in no way related to the type of behavior that they should have. You know what I mean? Like in the medical setting, that is in no way a determinant. It is entirely the fault and the responsibility of the medical system to customize and individualize our care so that it optimally treats every single different type of family that we meet. Right. And I feel also in saying that you're also over, I feel over exaggerating how much power each individual Black person has to manipulate their life outcomes. So you see this whenever some video is released, some violent, violent video of some Black person being killed at the hand of the cops or even Ahmaud Arbery, you know, being um, shot in the street while jogging. You always see all of these comments that, oh, well, you could have done this differently or he shouldn't have run or he should have moved like this. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what he would have done. He would have ended up dead, right? So people tend to over-exaggerate the amount of autonomy that we actually have as Black individuals. And this is why in a lot of ways, people would say we still are enslaved and that we don't have the ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And I mean, this is why even I was listening to a podcast the other day that was talking about why the government, the federal government has been really resistant to countrywide increases in minimum wages. Um, why is it that we see so many Republican individuals against food stamps, against um, increasing funding for public schools? And a lot of this is, you know, these are examples of systematic racism. These are examples of how it doesn't matter what attitude a Black woman has when she walks into a healthcare office because her lived experience has been completely shaped by racism and even her ability to pay for that session, um, to pay for that appointment is dictated by these greater systems that are controlled by white people. It's, you know, we have, we have a lot of changes that we have to make as a country and as a society. But if I look at the current administration and the people that they are putting into leadership roles. I mean, these people that they're putting into leadership roles have very different focus and very different priorities than prior cabinets. You know, the person, I can't remember the position, but um, I think it was somebody that was put in charge of um, like housing, you know, like HUD. And it's a person who like their entire career has fought against like redlining and fought against like, you know, racial discrimination in housing. I mean, 
you know, just the fact that somebody in the United States cabinet would have that background and have that lens when they are looking at American policies, it's incredible. And I don't know how much of it is due to Biden. I don't know how much of it is due to Kamala Harris or who I need to thank, but you know, there are multiple people in positions of power in our government just recently that really have a different lens and really have openly acknowledged structural racism as a cause of many disparities, including health disparities. And I'm hopeful that, you know, even if they can't completely upend every policy to make everything equitable, just having them in that leadership position and them speaking the truth you know, to enough other people in leadership roles has to start swinging the pendulum in the right direction. Right. And it really highlights the fact that we need to get into those positions of leadership for actionable change to actually happen. Um, Because even if the general public or folks in really liberal cities on the coast feel a certain way, at the end of the day, do people in power feel that way? The people that actually can impact housing and impact health disparities, do they feel that way? And I think that we tend to get so caught up with what media might say or what we feel like our city might feel like. And then when something like Trump getting elected happens, we're like in shock. Um, And there was a lot of shock associated with his win. And to be honest, even the most recent election was pretty close, like way, way closer than I think a lot of us would have expected and very disturbing, Um, especially all that after all that had happened in the span of four years. Um, And yeah, I just... I don't know. I, I'm definitely excited to see what happens in the future of this country, but I'm I'm still very, very cautious, you know, because as we have spoken about before in previous calls, you feel that in order to survive in these positions of power, you do have to give up a lot of your Blackness or that you have to somehow pick between being an activist and, and being committed to teaching others about anti-racism versus being successful in your field. Absolutely. And, you know, in order to be a, a healed and whole human being, you know, I've fully accepted that there has to be space for both of my passions. There has to be space for me to be an incredible clinician, an incredible researcher, and for me to also be an ardent anti-racist and a health equity warrior. Because, um, you know, in, you know, to try to quiet or silence the one that makes people uncomfortable to advance my own career, that's not a life of integrity for me. And so, you know, I I worry sometimes that speaking truth to the public, speaking truth to power could somehow affect my career that I love and my career progression. But I also know in my heart that, you know, I need to be at an institution that shares the same values that I share. And that if anything, this urge towards anti-racism and health equity is a huge advantage to any place that I end up working. It's not a detractor and it's not a risk. And so I've just fully embraced that and realized that as long as I you know, am on the side of patience, as long as I'm on the side of equity, only good things can come.
Right. Well, that's a great note to end on. Um, is there anything else that you want to add, especially, um, I'm not sure if you wanted to say anything else about how anti-racism maybe impacts the field that you're in or any other major points that you want people to understand about the health of children and medications that they need access to or how to best support the health of black mothers. I, um, you know, the only other thing I'll say is that um, we really need to focus on diversity of, of research participants. You know, when we do studies to find the best drug or to find the best dose, we need to have all types of patients represented. And um, part of the lack of racial diversity in clinical trials is due to um, very deserved mistrust of the medical system by certain patient populations. But another big part of it is that certain patients are not routinely approached and offered research opportunities the way that other patients and populations are. And so there's work to be done on the side of the, of the research community to really intentionally improve the diversity of our clinical research and our drug trials so that all children are represented um, and so that's another thing that I think is really important, you know, the, the medical disparities, but also the research disparities are really important. The last thing I'll say is that I, you know, of course, I'm a busy woman, um, but I, the, one of the reasons I agreed to be on the podcast with you is that I'm just so inspired by your generation of people in the biomedical workforce. I mean, the current grad students, the current postdocs, the current medical students, they are just um, full of fire in a way that is inspiring. And you know, the fact that you guys are doing things like podcasts that reach back into the community, you know, the fact that you're doing things like, you know, creating whole COVID vaccination efforts in your community. I mean, it's really inspiring to see and you know, as, as somebody who's kind of like on that cusp of an older age, I don't call myself old yet, but I just, I'm so inspired by your generation and I want to be a part of it. So I'm glad that you invited me to be on the podcast today. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Um, like I said, I just saw your tweet and I loved it. And I was like, okay, then I looked you up and then I decided to email you and I was shocked that you responded because it is really hard as a younger researcher to have conversations with people that are higher up. Um, and a lot of the time it's literally just availability and time, but that's also part of decolonizing science is kind of breaking down those hierarchies and understanding what your generation might be able to gain from my generation's perspective on this and vice versa. So I really appreciate you being down to come on the podcast. And I think a lot of people will really learn based off of a lot of things that you said, because I think even when it just comes to research, people will trust a certain drug because they feel, okay, well, this drug has been tested on humans before and preliminary research says that it's safe or that it's the best drug to use for whatever disease I have. But a lot of people aren't thinking about, well, how well represented was my community in this research and how invested were those initial people and when they created their initial methodology in recruiting people for their study that accurately represented American society. It's a huge thing to think about. And it's a bias Absolutely. that's in a lot of research and a lot of medicine. 
Well, thank you so much for joining in today. And um, I'm not sure if you want to share any social media platforms. I know you're active on Twitter. If you want to share your Twitter with the group. Sure. It's at Tamara Lewis, M-D, at T-A-M-O-R-A-H-L-E-W-I-S-M-D. And what is the book, again, that you had mentioned earlier that you think people should read? How to Be an Anti-Racist. And who is that by? Ibram Kendi. Okay, perfect. So everybody (laughs) pick up that book because it seems like there's a lot to unpack there. Um, So thank you. You're welcome. Please visit decolonizingscience.org to see sources for today's episode. The goal of this podcast is not to be your weekly standalone acknowledgement of racism. Put in the effort to continue your education based off of what you learn in these episodes. Follow at decolonizingsci on Instagram and Twitter. Email decolonizingsci at gmail.com if you're interested in speaking on the podcast or making recommendations for future episodes. Decolonizing Science is written and produced entirely by me, so please Venmo or Cash App Decolonizing Science to make future episodes and promotion possible. If someone you know is struggling with depression or thoughts of suicide, please visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org or call 1-800-273-8255.